And we are thankful that you're here. Um, I almost thought that I'd be talking with Sean and him talking with me based off all the rain that's going on out there. So thank you for braving that and joining us. Um, also, just wanted to say from the get-go, you know, Sean and I have been attending this conference probably for the past decade or so since we were medical students. And this is the first year we were asked to speak. And so I'm just delighted to be able to have the opportunity and hope it's not the last time. But I did notice on page 33, I think, of the book, there's an evaluation. So if you rate us well, hopefully we'll be able to come back um, again. But um, again, great to be with you guys um, We are coming to you from Clarkston, Georgia. Clarkston is a town that is about 10 miles to the southeast of downtown Atlanta. Um, Clarkston is an immigrant community um, for reasons that we will kind of share about um, in this presentation, but it has been also a site for the resettlement of refugees for the past 30 to 40 years. And so we are a part, we are two of the six founders of Ethne Health, which is a mission-centered um, primary care clinic um, right in Clarkston. And we see all patients of all walks and faiths and backgrounds at Ethne, but we have a particular heart to reach um, those that are vulnerable in our community, particularly those from an immigrant or refugee background. So we've been doing this work um, for only the past three or four years. So I say that to say that we are not the experts and that many of you probably have more time and experience doing this work, and we'd love to leave some time at the end um, for you guys to comment and to ask questions and to have a discussion. Um, So with that, um, we have objectives for today. The first objective is to explain the difference between immigrants, migrants, refugees, parolees, and asylees. It's really important that we kind of get our terms straight. We're going to then examine the biblical mandate for refugee care. And then um, kind of explore the unique aspects to providing holistic health care to refugees living in the U.S. And there's our hope that we can work the timing so that we spend most of our time kind of talking about Objective 3. So with that, I'll turn it over to Sean. Hello, everybody. Can you hear me? Hello? Yep. (laughs) We have two microphones here. So hopefully this will work. All right, so uh, thank you again for coming to see us talk. It added a little bit of pressure, uh, but that's good pressure, I think, right? Pressure makes diamonds. Hopefully we will sparkle. <laughs> so, you know, the, um, for the past eternity, since the world began, there have been people that have been displaced. There have been people that have uh, traveled to foreign lands uh, and Throughout time, we have made terms for them. Um, so the first term here is migrant. Um, so you may have heard of a migrant. A migrant is someone who leaves his or her country, um, usually is not forced out, and it's usually temporary. So it could be for school, could be for work, it could be, you know, your great aunt comes over from England to help take care of the baby. Um, but that is the idea here is that it's temporary, that you still have some protection um, of your home country, your home government. Uh, the second term here is immigrant. So an immigrant is permanent. Uh, so it's somebody that is coming uh, to a new country uh, for and, and hoping to have permanent residence. And so this could uh, be because uh, they um, of economic uh, situations. It could be uh, that... Uh, they found somebody uh, that they 
you know, wanted to marry, uh, or this just the intention here is permanent. And, and both of these definitions are very, very broad. Um, so uh, we serve a large refugee and asylee population. So a refugee is a person uh, that has left his or her country uh, by force or uh, by their own volition but is unwilling or unable to return. Um, usually this is comes from a well-founded uh, fear of persecution uh, or they have uh, suffered uh, persecution. And so and this is, and I'll define this further, um, but it is permanent. Um, it comes generally from a uh, persecution. And, and the, the other key here is that it happens outside of I said the U.S., but it happens outside the resettled country. So this is the status that you get before you are resettled to a new country. Uh, An asylee uh, is pretty much the exact same thing as a refugee, only uh, it is a designation that you get when you are at the border or within the country. So uh, an example here, my wife used to work for World Relief in Memphis, Tennessee, um, there was a woman who was visiting some friends um, from uh, her home country. Her husband was a politician. Uh, he was uh, assassinated. Um, it was unsafe for her to return home. She applied for asylee status and became an asylee. And the last is a, a parolee. Um, uh, and this is, you know, the, the general he- term here is a humanitarian parolee. Uh, this is somebody that has... Um, would otherwise not be allowed into uh, the United States or uh, at least admitted to the United States under legal terms, um, but has come here uh, for a temporary period due to some emergency that, uh, at least in the U.S., we identify as a crisis. So this could be war, it could be a natural disaster, um, and we'll talk a little bit about more about parolees because there are a lot of uh, people from Afghanistan uh, that have come under this parolee status. And um, so, you know, with the most maybe publicized recent um, cause for people being displaced from their home country is in Afghanistan. Um, There have been, uh, I, I, I forget the number, but we are welcoming thousands of people from Afghanistan, um, and they're generally under one of four categories. So uh, one of them is as a refugee, um, uh, which we talked about. And these are people that have, may have worked with the government for less than a year or worked with some non-government uh, organization um, that is affiliated with uh, the United States. And because of their connection to the United States, it is no longer safe for them to be in Afghanistan. And so they have been given, they have applied for in Afghanistan and been given refugee status. Uh, there's also this SIV, this is a special immigrant visa. This is a status that has been given to people that have worked with the United States government for longer than a year um, and have uh, undergone a, a process to get this special immigrant visa. Uh, And then there's this new designation, uh, somewhat new. It was also used during the uh, Iraq uh, crisis. That's the SQ and SI uh, parolee. These are very similar to the people that have the special immigrant visas, although they just don't have their visa yet. So they're in the application process to get the visa. And the last is uh, a 
Afghan humanitarian parolee. And these do not meet the criteria of the above, uh, but they are the, – the hopes is that these people will – be able to apply for asylee status because they are currently in the United States. So they have come um, by some means, a lot of them, uh, on our uh, planes and transportation to the U.S. And um, now the the slide shows a couple things. Uh, it shows it kind of divides up what some of the um, Benefits are, so, you know, the refugees and the special immigrant visas and the SQSI parolees get a lot of benefits. Um, they are uh, allowed to have social services. They're allowed to have um, apply for Medicaid. Um, they are apply, allowed to uh, get TANF, which is temporary assistance for needy families. Um, this does not apply to the humanitarian parolees, which is the largest uh, group of Afghan um, people coming to the U.S. currently. But there is this, if you look at the second line, something called the Afghan Parolee Support Program, which is a new program that is trying to get services to uh, these people. Um, we can talk uh, for two hours about the differences here. Uh, this is just a cursory, and as Robbie mentioned, neither one of us are uh, experts, um, but um, we, you know, are, are still learning and, and would love to share what we know. Uh, so what is a refugee? So, you know, the refugee uh, program um, has been around since the 50s. Uh, this, there was a convention uh, with the U.N., um, kind of leading the, the cause here. So they define a refugee as a person outside his or her country of nationality who is unable or unwilling to return uh, to his or her country because of persecution, well-founded fear of persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership, and a political social or uh, particular social group or a political opinion. Um, and so – you know, this, that there is a process to become a refugee. You don't say, I want to be a refugee, and you become a refugee. There uh, is a uh, pretty rigorous uh, process, uh, which, we, which begins with uh, the United Nations identifying a refugee crisis, a crisis for displacement. One, and they will give the designation uh, as a refugee. Um, so then... To be resettled to a new country, you have to go through an extensive process, uh, which includes security, kind of broad level, security, placement, and transition. So the security is going through um, a rigorous background check. It's going through uh, interviews um, uh, with governmental officials. Um, and then once you are approved, uh, then you can be placed. And and it says you're placed 30 to 90 days. Um, that is 30 to 90 days after that first column um, is, uh, is completed. Uh, typically in recent years, this whole process has taken 18 to 24 months. Um, we have uh, a fair amount of Bhutanese refugees in Clarkston. There are many uh, – there's an entire generation of Bhutanese um, refugees that were born in a refugee camp, at least – before they are resettled, some people are spending 10, 15, 20 years in a refugee camp uh, under not optimal conditions before they're resettled. Uh, and then there's this process of transition. Uh, oh, and, and the placement, the United States places refugees. The government contracts with nine different uh, organizations, um, uh, including World Relief, who my wife used to work for, but also uh, Catholic Charities, um, 
Inspiritus, uh, which used to be Lutheran Services, uh, and then the largest one, which the name is escaping my mind. Oh, yeah, IRC. I don't know how I forgot that one. They're huge. Um, and then there's this transition period where uh, they are given a uh, certain amount of uh, money. They're helped with job placement and employment. Uh, they also um, are given uh, – there's a medical screening process that uh, that they go through, and, and that – it could be at the health department. It could be at contracted uh, clinics um, where we are. It is uh, at the health department. Um, in Memphis, Tennessee, it was contracted with Christ Community Health Services. Uh, I don't know if it still is, but it used to be. Um, and so, yeah, and so that's the, the kind of transitioning. There, there are these organizations um, help families transition to the United States. And as you can imagine, it could be very difficult. So just kind of, uh, you know, I had, it says refugee down here. I forgot to change the slide. It's just really refugee or asylee. It applies to both. Um, you know, as soon as you set foot uh, and you were resettled in the United States, you qualify to work. Um, you are given uh, temporary medical assistance uh, for the first – it depends on the state, but in Georgia it's for eight months. So you get something that is very similar to Medicaid. Uh, for eight months. Uh, after the first year, you qualify for a green card. Um, with refugee or asylee status, you're almost guaranteed a green card, but you have to fill out the application. Um, unfortunately, we see some patients that have not. Uh, then after five years, you can qualify to become a United States citizen. Um, and the, the medical little nuance here is that you have to go through a civil surgeon exam, which is uh, one of our providers, uh, Dr. Kim, performs um, it is just a required exam to, in order to become a citizen. Um, the reason this is important is not many people can do this exam, and the people that can do it charge sometimes thousands of dollars to do it. And so um, while it is involved and requires a lot of time, um, our goal has been to try to minimize that cost to the patient. All right, yeah, so that's that's kind of the nuts and bolts and some definitions for us. We wanted to just kind of zoom out a little bit and kind of share a little bit more about the scope of the problem. So this is this data is a couple years old, but from 2019, there's over 79 million people that are forcibly displaced. And again, what that means is these are not people that want to leave their home country, but they have to, right, in order – it's a survival question, right? In order to survive, they're needing to leave their home. Uh, many of those, 45.7 million, are internally displaced, so they stay within their country, just moving across the country or another town, perhaps. Um, but 26 million are what we're talking about when we talk about ref our refugees. You can see that uh, since the 1990s or so, that that number has been dramatically increasing and really um, taking off over the past decade. Um, some other kind of statistics about displaced people. Overall, it's about 1% of the world's population. 40% um, of the world's displaced people are children. And then many of the countries that people are going to when they're displaced are neighboring countries, which, which makes sense. So 73% of displaced people are, that are, leave their country are hosted in a neighboring country. This is kind of some more specific information to the U.S. So this is looking, um, you know, over time. You can see over the past 10 years, 
um, the U.S. annual refugee resettlement ceiling. So these numbers are usually set by the presidential administration, and you can see that we had a peak in 2017 with a ceiling of 110,000. Again, take that number and think about it in the large scope. We're talking 26 million, right, 26 million refugees. In the U.S., we have a ceiling, I think, at its peak of 110,000. And the numbers dropped off during the last administration to a low in 2021 of 15,000. But the numbers projected for 2022 are about 125,000. So we're going to be kind of getting back up to that, to that peak. Where are refugees that are resettled in the U.S. coming from? Um, you guys can see here most, over almost 5,000 or so. This is all of 2021. This is 2021 data. Um, coming from the DRC, seconded by Syria, Afghanistan, Ukraine, and, and Burma. You see, so putting that together, about 55% of the refugees resettled in the U.S. are coming from the, the continent of Africa. One of the things that I did want to point out is that these situations that you see here, so the DRC, for example, Syria, Afghanistan, Ukraine, these, these, they are not solved by any stretch of the imagination by the fact that we've admitted, you know, 5,000 refugees from the DRC. These are active, you know, areas of conflict and war. I was reminded of this just this past week. We have um, one, of our, one of our administrators in the clinic is a refugee from Burma, and he sent out this text message. I'll just read it to you briefly. We have a, a WhatsApp group with our clinic. It says, please pray for my father's village and neighboring villages. It is being attacked by the military, and old people in the villages don't have anywhere to go and are stuck there. So, again, it's just heartbreaking um, to hear about the violence and persecution that many around the world are facing and fleeing. Where are refugees going? These are the top 10 uh, states um, where refugees were resettled in 2021. And you guys can kind of get a sense of where that is. Um, Kentucky is on the map. Georgia is on that map. And uh, you guys can, can read the others. Many refugees are resettled in cities. Um, and that's for a variety of reasons. It relates to housing, job availability, transportation, international airports, and this is a little bit old data from 2017 to 2018 um, that you know, many of the refugees were set. Atlanta was number one, where we're from, um, and then Louisville also made this list uh, as well. Turn it over to you. Yeah, so you can see that uh, there, have been, there are a lot of refugees. Uh, there are a lot of refugees that are currently being resettled, not only in the U.S., but a lot of uh, partner countries. Um, so this is, uh, as Robbie said, kind of a, a big level point of view over the world. This map is over uh, metro Atlanta, uh, where we live. Um, you can see just uh, the since this is based on 2010 census data, uh, so it has ch changed uh, a little bit, but for the most part, the trends are the same. Uh, you could just see in northern Atlanta, not, not unlike a lot of uh, metro cities in the U.S., um, there is a divide between uh, race. You know, northern Atlanta is predominantly Caucasian and white. South Atlanta is uh, black. Um, in our little pocket, you can see uh, – it's going to be really hard for me to get the uh, mouse over there – but – Clarkston, uh, that's where we live, is multicolored. It's like a little rainbow because um, we have been designated, as I will show you, the most diverse square mile in the United States. 
so since the uh, early uh, 80s, uh, Clarkson has been resettling refugees. So uh, the uh, resettlement agencies got together uh, and decided to like kind of combine their efforts uh, and create a single city uh, where they would excuse me, resettle the pre- uh, predominant uh, amount of uh, refugees, and they chose, clo- chose Clarkston for um, reasons that we could talk about later. Um, but over the past uh, 30 years, they have resettled uh, refugees from Vietnam and Cambodia, uh, most recently uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, the DRC, and Syria. Uh, so we have about 20, we still have about 22,000 uh, population in Clarkston. Um, this is from, I think, 2017. It's currently at that very uh, left circle. Uh, it's just over 50% foreign-born. So um, I, I tell people that if you want to see what heaven looks like, go to Milan Park, uh, and you see all these little kids playing. And, I mean, they are from literally every country across the globe, and it's, it's just beautiful. Um, so this is uh, our founding team. We have added uh, several team members. Uh, that good-looking guy up on the left is Robbie, uh, Dr. Andrew and Esther Kim, um, Sarah Neely, uh, who is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and has been vital uh, to our operation, as I'll talk about a little bit, uh, myself, and then Dr. Laurie Bowden, who's a pediatrician. So um, between the six of us, we have three uh, board-certified uh, pediatricians. Um, pretty much everybody there sees kids, so we see kids and adults. Um, we have a full range of services. Um, just a little bit quickly about our journey to get to uh, Georgia. Um, we were residents uh, in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, where we met um, and served together in the inner city. Uh, we began praying about what it would look like, to, to what, what God wanted us to do after residency, um, and it was at this conference in 2014 uh, that we sat down and prayed uh, and felt like the Lord was calling us to start a clinic uh, and to have a clinic that served refugees. Uh, I also felt the Lord calling me to marry my now wife, uh, so it was pretty productive. I, I, <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't say I could probably count on two or three fingers the times when I felt like God clearly spoke to me, and the, and the Lord clearly spoke to us about uh, serving um, just vulnerable populations here uh, in the U.S. So we went around the country. We went to Oakland and Baltimore and then uh, Clarkson, Georgia, and that's ultimately where we all moved and opened our doors to our clinic, Ethne Health, in 2018. So Sean just spoke about kind of a specific calling that we received um, here back in 2014. Um, But what I wanted to do next was kind of move into kind of the biblical mandate for refugee care, this more general calling that's that's given to the church, I think. And um, first question is why the Bible, right? Um, The Bible is our worldview, right? It informs everything that we do and everything that we think and It is what the Lord has used over the years to shape us into following him and to give us a specific calling. Um, So it's really important that we that we talk about it and that we that we understand it. Um, And I'm going to make the case that we should all agree um, as Bible believing Christians about the biblical mandate for refugee care. We may as individuals um, disagree on how that's done. 
you know, the specifics, you know, the numbers of people that come in, where people are resettled, what services they get, for how long. Um, but this idea of, of, of going back and, and, and being called to serve vulnerable people is something that, that I believe the Bible teaches very strongly. Um, you may be surprised uh, by this, but there's data out there that, that says what I just said is kind of controversial. And I just kind of wanted to show some of that before we start. So, and I will also, dis- with a disclaimer here, was going to say that my, my goal in sharing this is, is not to get focused on the particular percentages here and not to get focused on how different demographic groups are defined, but simply to say that it's controversial. <laughs> um, there's a Pew study from 2018 that um, asked the question, does the U.S. have the responsibility to accept refugees? And if you look at the, the um the population that they studied overall, um, about 51% of people agreed with that, okay? or 49 said, no, we don't. If you kind of break it down by political affiliation, race, uh, education, you guys see here that more Democrats than Republicans, more people of color than white people, more people that are college educated than not college educated, uh, believe that the U.S. has a responsibility to accept and to care for refugees. Where I think this gets a little bit hairy is when you kind of you look at religious affiliation, right? So people that are religiously unaffiliated in this study, 65% or so thought that the U.S. has a responsibility to care for refugees. And the group least likely to agree with that statement were right evangelicals at 25%, right? So again, don't want to get caught up in the numbers and the labels here, but just to say that as a larger community, we don't all agree about this. So, this idea of welcoming the stranger goes back to our founding. I didn't know this until recently, but etched in the Statue of Liberty is this statement. Right? I'm just going to read it for you. It says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. But this idea of welcoming the stranger did not start with America, right? It it was really God's idea first. And so we wanted to kind of go through that. uh, I'm going to steal some of of the way that this is presented from an author named Dustin Crow, who's an author and blogger and writes sometimes for the Gospel Coalition. But he organizes the argument like this. He kind of starts with, number one, seeing through Scripture God's special care for the vulnerable. Number two, looking at God's commands for justice and for Israel to remember that they were sojourners. Number three, the specific consequences that Israel, the warnings that they were giving and the consequences they had to endure when they disobeyed this commandment. And then lastly, Jesus' call for sacrificial love. So my goal here, this is, again, we could... Like like we could on many of these different topics, we could spend a whole hour talking about it, but a brief overview of this. Um, Number one, God's special care for the vulnerable. I'm just going to read a couple of examples of this. So Psalm 146.9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Deuteronomy 10, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So God knows that we live in this world that exists and it constitutes people that are powerful 
and people that are not powerful, right? And that people in power, not all the time, but oftentimes utilize that power to stay, to, 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 to take advantage of the vulnerable and the powerless and stay in power through doing that, right? And God says that he has a special care. He, like, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, right? He does that for them. And I have some other examples there that you can look up if, you, if you'd like. Uh, point two, God's command for justice. So in Leviticus, um, the giving of the law, um, Moses writes this, you know, that God instructed him, when a, stranger, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So you guys see from this, this is just not kind of like a good idea. God's not just saying, you should just kind of do this or think about doing it. Like, it's a command. Like, it's a law. It's something that he builds into the laws of the nation and pretty much says, don't use your advantage to exploit others, particularly the sojourner. But to love him, to treat him as yourself. And he says, for you were strangers. And I think what that's supposed to make them think of is that when we were strangers, when we were exiles in Egypt, God cared for us. Right? And I think that we, on the New Testament side of things, knowing the truth of the gospel, like, we can understand, like, when we were far from him, like, God reached out to us and cared for us. And I think that that motivates us to care for, to care for others. Looking at Israel's consequences for their disobedience, this comes out of, out of Ezekiel. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. So we know that Ezekiel is writing um, in this very turbulent time in Israel's history where they're being carried into exile, and he makes a direct connection between them being exiled and God's wrath being poured out upon them and how they treated the sojourner. Right? And how they treated vulnerable peoples around them. And then lastly, Jesus' call for sacrificial love. So I think we're all pretty familiar with Matthew 25 and this picture that Jesus gives at the end of all time. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and he will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And it's, it's really, um, I mean, again, I'm not advocating a works-based salvation by any, by any stretch of the imagination. But one of the things that identifies followers of Jesus, right, is how they care for vulnerable people. Those that are thirsty, right? those that are naked, those that are strangers. And I think that that, as well as through so many other passages in the New Testament, give the church right this, this charge to care for vulnerable people, including the sojourner. All right, now we uh, are just going to talk a little bit about... Um, 10 aspects of 
refugee care. Um, again, we are not experts, but these are ten things that we have found in our time uh, serving refugees at Ethne uh, to uh, just contribute to overall health and success and relationships with the refugees. So the first is to be familiar with the refugee experience. We're about to watch a video. Uh, it's quick. There's a lot, I mean, I've watched this video probably 20 times, and it's like every time I watch it, there's something new. So look at the screen. Pay attention. Um, this is just a snippet of what it might be like to be uh, a refugee. So the thing I like about this video is it shows this little girl having a pretty typical life that many of us uh, can relate to, celebrating her birthday, watching TV, going to school, and then just like that, her life is flipped upside down. Uh, and this is the story of so many refugees that quickly normalcy is is flipped, and they are forced out of their home. Um, there was a, a bomb that went off. Many, many uh, happened under conditions of war or persecution. Um, and what was once normal is now completely foreign. Um, and it is important when we serve any population um, overseas or domestically that we try to understand the experience of the people that we're serving and trying to love um, and administering health care to. Um, and the refugee experience, I, I kind of have broken it down prior to resettlement than after resettlement, but, you know, they are the refugees have suffered physical trauma. Many have been beaten, tortured, uh, raped. They have witnessed uh, there, the, the, the torture and the killing uh, and the, the decline in health of their family members. They have witnessed loss. Um, many have been separated from their families to this day. They have 
people don't have any idea. Some refugees or asylees have no idea where their family is, where the, whether their family is alive. Um, it all, all takes a huge toll. The other thing is, is that you know it doesn't show that little girl's mom and dad, but it is loss of livelihood. Many refugees were. Some were farmers, some were teachers. There are doctors and nurses that that now have lost, you know, something that for many of them was their identity, you know, and now they no longer have that identity, um, and they're no longer able to to work with that identity uh, as they transition to uh, the area of resettlement. Um, and I think this this leaves a lot of uh, resentment, a lot of feelings of betrayal that. A government, maybe, that should be protecting them has has let them fall victim. Um, uh, friends or people that they called friends that may be and have different political or cultural or religious uh, ideologies have turned on them. Um, there is this uh, I- the enemy enemies coming in, uh, whether it is uh, a militia uh, or or even enemy forces that are their own. Soldiers of their own country have come in, and they are are forced out of their home. This this leads, as you can imagine, to a lot of loss of trust. Uh, refugees have poor trust um, in in the people around them. And then after resettlement, they're in a new country. Um, we many of us. I don't know where you all are from, but many of us are probably citizens of the U.S. We were born here. We may, you know, we think that U.S. is, the United States is, is amazing, and, and, and I, I'm very happy that I'm an American citizen. Um, but it is hard for us to maybe step into the shoes of someone that has come here that doesn't speak the language, that doesn't understand the culture, um, who I, I mentioned they lost their livelihood uh, in, in Clarkson, where we are, a lot of the employment are uh, chicken factories. You know, there are four very large chicken factories that that people who and 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 don't get me wrong, like I'm I'm so thankful that we are able to find them employment, but it is hard for people that had a different livelihood that are overqualified or misqualified to work at these factories. Um, you know, when I lived in Memphis, uh, one of the, the janitorial staff at uh, my wife's church that she grew up in um, was a, a general in the Iraqi Air Force. Like he, he was flown to England and taught the British uh, forces like techniques and flying. Like he was a pilot and uh, was amazing. And then again, I, I don't want to d- degrade the. I, I don't want to say anything wrong about that. There's wrong about working. Uh, on, a, on a staff, but this man is highly trained, and and all of a sudden his identity, you know, as a pilot um, was gone. Um, this happens a lot. And then the other thing is just lack of support. Um, you, you because you don't aren't familiar with the environment, because you're not familiar with the culture, because you might be the only Rohingya family in a 400 mile radius. Um, you often lack support. So it is super important to be to, to be able to understand and be familiar with what the refugees have experienced. 
And the second thing is, it is so important to be hospitable. Um, I, I said hospitality, a refuge for a community. You know, refuge is, is, is going to a place of safety, a place of cover, uh, a place that could be of peace. I mean, how often did, did David uh, talk in, in the Psalms about the Lord and the God being his refuge? Um, we, we desire a place of safety, and we want uh, at our clinic to, to make our place welcoming, make Ethne Health welcoming and a place of safety. Um, we want people, when they walk in that door, no matter what happened outside in the world that day or 20 years previous, we want them to come in and find welcome. We want them to feel cared for. Um, one of my, I joke to Robbie, because anytime I get in front of a, a group of people, I love to talk about John 4. The woman of the well story is my favorite, one of my favorite uh, stories in the entire Bible. And, and this is a woman who was an outcast and was shunned, and Jesus met her. And he met her, and he understood her. It, it, her biggest thing she was most ashamed of was her five husbands. And he asked her, how many times, you know, go bring your husband I can. I'm no longer married. That's because you've been five times married, and now the man you're living with is no longer willing to give you the security of his name. Jesus understood how broken, how rejected she has, how she was, and he accepts her. He, she's the first person in the Gospel of John to find out that he is the Messiah. The, the king of the universe reveals himself to an outcast, and her response was to run back into the village and say, come meet the man that knows everything about me. And the people are like, do you know about the husbands? He knows about the husbands. You know, like that is what we desire. That is what we should all desire when engaging in service and loving people. We want to draw people. We want to draw people chiefly to Jesus, um, but we want to draw people into a place of welcome and a place of care and a place where their needs, um, whether physical, mental, emotional, um, can be met. All right. Um, next important aspect is practicing patience. So um, the way that our healthcare system here in the States, as many of you know, is designed is it is designed to work quickly and efficiently, ideally, um, right? The more patients you see, the better often it's, it's talked about, right? I mean, but when it comes to caring for people and particularly immigrants and refugees, we have to slow down. And I will say this is a tension that we live with every day, right? Because we need to see patients, right? They're, the needs are huge. Um, we need to keep the lights on, right? We need, we need to see patients, um, but we have to slow down. And this relates mainly to the fact that many of the people that we care for don't speak English very well or just learning English. So interpretation, not just using the five-year-old child to interpret for the mom, but using high-quality, trained medical interpretation, it takes time, Right? Sure, many of you guys have been in that scenario. It just it just takes time, and I we just always have to just reset our expectations, or this is just going to take longer. You know, the way that we've dealt with that, you know, from a clinic flow schedule, is we try to understand which patients need interpretation and just block off more time for them. 
the other part about patience is that many times we're, we're speaking with and caring for people that don't have the luxury of having as much education as we've had, even a basic high school education. So kind of their understanding of kind of how the body works and how medicine works is, is, is very elementary, right? And so it really takes time for us to, and we just really are, we have to slow down and really do our best to make sure that we're communicating well. And, and, and we don't do that perfectly. We're always seeking and trying to find better ways to do that. But just having patience and slowing down is incredibly important. Along those lines, um, practicing listening as medicine. So one, I think, of the challenges that maybe we as healthcare providers have is that someone comes to us with a problem and we want, the, we want to have the solution, right? We, we want to have the, the beautiful differential diagnosis, order the right testing to sort those things out and come up with a with a accurate diagnosis and a beautiful plan to fix the problem, right? That's kind of what we were trained to do. But one of the things that I think we're learning and caring for a large community of immigrants and refugees is sometimes just just being heard is, is really important. Um, Sean and I were, were just talking the number of patients that come and see us with these very strange neurologic complaints. We just can't put them together at all. And we're just, am I missing something? Right? Did I did I miss that part of school or resident? I just can't put this together. And and sometimes it's it, it's the way that mental illness and trauma manifests itself. Certainly, but some, I'm just amazed by the number of times where I'm just listening and I, I don't have a good solution to this problem, but just giving them the opportunity to speak about what's going on. And the number of times that people said, "Just thank you for for listening to me and for hearing me." All right, the use of cultural consults. So um, one of the things that we found to be probably most powerful in, in, our, in our clinic setting is bringing in people from the community to work with us and providing medical care. So um, as you saw from you know, our, our founding team, none of us have the refugee experience. We're all, I think, all born in America. I might be wrong. Yeah, that's uh, we had one that was not. Thank you. I hesitated there. But grew up mostly in America and um, went to pretty good schools, Went, did fine, and just had that experience very different from many in, in our community that we're serving. And so one of the things that we intentionally try to do when we're hiring is bringing people in that know the language, that can help us with that interpretation, but also those that, that know the culture. And I think it, doing this contributes to this sense of welcome and being cared for that we're trying to cultivate in our clinic. Um, I think about just yesterday, I saw a patient in clinic um, that she is from um, Burma, and she, I believe, was just resettled back in September. She's only been here for a couple of months, and I'm seeing her for diabetes and hypertension, and we're getting towards the end of that visit, and, you know, it, it's taking a while, right, because we're using an interpreter and kind of working on still understanding the basics of how these things are managed. And um, at the end, you know, we're getting to the end of that, and I say, is there anything else that I can that I can help you with today? And then kind of the story comes out, right? I'm not sleeping. Okay, well, why are you not sleeping? Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about um, 
the rest of my family back in Burma, right? She has three other kids, all of which are teenagers, and there's a lot of kidnappings happening. And she says that the ages of my kids are right at the age where the army is, is kidnapping kids, and I haven't heard from my kids for a week, right? That's why I can't sleep. And so, golly, what, what do you... And, and, I mean, I have, I have kids, I have boys, and I just think about them and, and how I would feel being in her situation. And we have one of our staff members with us in the room, and I just end the visit and talk about the sleep and talk about some other issues. And we get to the point of, can we, can we pray for you? You know, and I can't pray in Burmese, right? But our staff member can, and our staff member can pray for them in a way that is received well and, and familiar to them culturally. You know, so he asked me to pray first, and I did in English, and obviously she didn't understand that, but that's okay, um, because the Lord knows knows it all, and, and, and then he prayed for her. And I, I think just, and that was probably more healing than, than any, anything um, that I did. And so really being able to bring on others from the community to help minister to our patients has been um, really, really important for us. So I talked a little bit about understanding the refugee experience and um, just thinking of the trauma, losing loved ones, being injured yourself, um, being betrayed by people that you thought were advocates or for you, um, undergoing separation uh, from your family. You can imagine that it takes a toll. It takes a mental toll. Mental illness is very pervasive in, in our clinic. Um, I and and I mean I think that it is all it's safe to assume just just by changing culture shock um, I think can present a mental barrier. Um, but on top of all the trauma and separation and loss um, that they have experienced um, for our patients, um, it is just vital um, that we look for and treat and refer for treatment for mental illness. And, um, I mean, there are so many patients that I could talk about, but one particular patient uh, in particular, um, his name is... Oh, 10 minutes, goodness. Okay. (laughs) I have my new contacts in, but I can't see. Um, His name is uh, Nadir. Uh, He is from Iraq, um, and he has this horrible diabetes, and he just kept his sugar, his A1C got worse and worse and worse. He was gaining more and more weight. His blood pressure was uncontrolled, and I'm throwing medicine after medicine at him. Um, but the, 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 the core issue, I mean, he does have diabetes. He does have hypertension. Um, but this man was a victim of three, three attempts on his life. Two of them were suicide bombers. He's had, I think he told me it was like altogether 30 hours of surgery uh, to repair the damage done by... Um, the suicide bombers. I mean, he was separated from his son. Recently, praise the Lord, he was able to go to Turkey and visit his son, who he had not seen in 10 years. Um, but if you, if, if, until we started addressing the PTSD, the, the nightmares that he was having, he, was, he went through roommates because he would wake up just screaming, um, and it was scary for them um, until we could get him plugged in to our psychiatrist who um, helps shepherd us to, to further treat um, until we got him referred for counseling at a, a place called the Center for Victims of Torture. 
I wish we did not have to live in a world where we had a nonprofit with the name Centers for Victim of Torture, but it's so pervasive that we need it. And, and, and that counseling um, and, and medication, med, medical management, um, addressing his mental health, his blood pressure, and his A1C uh, are going down. The next thing is just realizing there are barriers to follow up. Um, again, the, going back to knowing the refugee experience after resettlement, they don't. Many do not speak English. The ones that speak English do not speak English well. They don't get cultural context. Many of them do not have transportation, and as I mentioned, they don't have connection or people to advocate for them. The resettlement agencies and the caseworkers there are phenomenal in almost every instance, um, but they can only do so much. Um, and trying to get somebody into specialist care for follow-up with us is sometimes, oftentimes, the difference between life and death. Um, I have a, a patient who is a, a Christian refugee from Pakistan um, who was our patient but also was a friend of my wife's, and uh, I just I noticed clubbing on her fingers. I noticed her when we were dancing for someone's birthday. I'm not a good dancer. I'm not going to do it. Um, but I noticed that she had to sit down with short of breath. We got her into the clinic. We treated her multiple times for um, what we suspected was some underlying lung disease, um, getting her in to get a, a CT uh, exam without insurance was difficult. But we we were able to navigate those things, finding partner organizations that can do that, um, getting her into getting disability, qualifying. She qualified for disability. Um, uh, with uh, As a refugee and asylee, you qualify. The, the, there's this five-year waiting period that doesn't apply to them. But that process, it takes time, and it takes people advocating. And, and unfortunately, we didn't do it soon enough. Um, she ended up getting admitted to the hospital. Uh, while my wife was helping her fill out her disability paperwork, her oxygen saturation was 50, and she was admitted to the hospital. She didn't leave the hospital. We don't want that to happen. We need connections. We need advocates, and we need to connect people to overcome these barriers to follow up. All right. Um, sorry, we're running a little short on time. Um, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just these last two kind of really quickly kind of just really, and this is probably one of two of the most important lessons that I think I personally have learned, but listening and looking for where God is working amongst us and then praying for insight in how and when to share spiritual truths with our patients. Um, so, we start every morning with staff devotions, and we also understand as a clinic that while we're treating disease and managing chronic illness, we're also in the midst of a real spiritual battle, right? And one of the things that we do is we really ask that the Holy Spirit would, mani- would be with us in a powerful way and manifest himself through our work and through the way that we care for people, particularly vulnerable people. Just a quick story, we had a, a, one of the ways that this, um, probably one of the best examples of this over the past year, we had a patient that kind of came in, she is, uh, I think, Nepalese from a Buddhist background, and um, saw us once, sounds like it was a pretty simple visit, but decided to come back um, for the sole reason to want to understand what type of energy was in our place, 
right? Just said, tell me about the energy that's here. Something feels good. Something's better at this place. Tell me about it. And that just opened up a door to share about the truth of, of Jesus and, and the gospel, right? And so we know our patients are all on spiritual journeys, and we look for clues and try to understand where they're at on those journeys. And while we're seeing patients praying that the Lord would give us words, whether that whatever that looks like, um, and to share and to encourage. And sometimes that's sharing the gospel. Sometimes it's sharing a story. Sometimes that's praying. I think it looks different for, for different patients based off of our relationships with them. All right, lastly. Yeah. And then the last thing is expecting to encounter Jesus. Um, Robbie talked about in, in Matthew when, when the king comes and say, you know, talks about, when he was cold, he was given coat. When he was um, thirsty, he was given water. And and the people are like, when, when did we ever do any of this stuff for you? And he said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. Um, we treat people because we want to treat them like we treat Jesus. But the truth is, um, is that when we walk in the steps and the commandments of Jesus and, and uh, James, it says... The, the freedom within the law. So this law, we don't like rules, but when, when we follow what Jesus commands, we encounter him. And time and time again, as we are trying our best, very, very poorly at, at times, to model Jesus to people. Oh, I'm supposed to be speaking of this. Um, we are encountering Jesus. Because when you are doing unto the least of these, and you are doing unto Jesus, you're encountering him. You're feeling the transformational power of His, of, of him, and of his spirit. Um, and so one of the things is just understanding, expect to encounter Jesus when you are treating the least of these and the vulnerable. Yeah, so with that, sorry we didn't leave much time, but I'd love if anybody had any comments or questions for the group. Yes, ma'am. So the uh, short answer is I have no idea of all the cities, but the, the, we, we are aware of many. Um, there's this wonderful organization uh, called the Christian Community Health Fellowship. Um, uh, so to answer your question, there are many refugee clinics, faith-based, faith-based refugee clinics. Uh, many of them are a part of this organization, Christian Community Health Fellowship. Um, I know of uh, Salome in Nashville, uh, Jericho Road in Buffalo. I forget the name of the one but the, in Dallas, but there's one in Dallas. Um, so, and, and, and yes, we are the members of CCHF, which our clinic is a member of. Uh, we rely heavily on each other. Uh, we have especially, I don't know how heavily they rely on us, but we rely on them. Um, you know, Myron Glick at Jericho Road uh, just has really shepherded us in, in many ways trying to uh, figure out how to navigate uh, refugee health in a way that is faithful to, to Jesus. Yeah. Yes.
Yeah, abs- absolutely. Please, maybe we can talk after, and I can get your email address, and then kind of email you a copy or whoever else is interested. Absolutely. All right. Oh, yeah. Hey. That's a, that's a great question and a great point. And um, the resettlement agencies do play an integral role, I think, in what we do. And we try to, you know, we, we've really worked to try to foster those relationships and meet the people that are kind of involved in each of them. Um, and because they're, they're so instrumental. I would say that practically the way that that looks is that they, they know about us. They know kind of how we function. Um, they know, you know, for instance, the details of, what insurance plans we're able to take and all those details and able to send patients to us um, that are that have just resettled. They're also able to help us with follow-up. So oftentimes I'll have a family that was resettled, say, five years ago, but has a lot of social needs and a lot of maybe even medical needs, and I'll just shoot an email to one of the case managers at whatever resettlement agency they were resettled by, and they're always happy to help. And so we really do rely heavily on them when it comes to kind of more of the intensive case management that some of our patients need. We just, we're not big enough yet. We're not old enough to have a lot of that in-house. So we really utilize that. And they get specific funding for these different case management programs, and so they're happy to receive uh, referrals. Yes. I can speak a, a little bit. Um, so my wife actually was the first one to the scene. As I said, she was we used to work for World Relief. She helped found the World Relief office in Memphis, Tennessee. And, um, yeah, the, the irony is, is that, I, again, I was late to the game. Uh, it wasn't until our prayer meeting uh, that I saw what I consider my ministry coinciding with hers, which is one of the reasons I decided to marry her. Um, but, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in the community, there are, the Clarkson, as we mentioned, has been doing this for 30 years. There are a lot of organizations that are thriving and helping a lot of people there. And so there are a lot of opportunities um, for uh, to, to get involved. And my wife works for uh, an organization called uh, Refugee Family Literacy. The old name is Mommy and Me, and everybody calls it that. But it's uh, essentially English as a second language for, mom, for moms and uh, early childhood development and preschool for kids. And she's an administrator there. Um, but, you know, simply living where we do, we both live, uh, you know, close or we're within Clarkston, um, you know, simply living there and going to the park, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you are, 
you you can't help but be involved and, and see what is going on and, and appreciate and learn to appreciate just like the beauty of the diversity where we live. So we are out of time. Thank you guys for staying a few minutes extra, but we're happy to stick around and answer any questions um, that you have. But yeah, thanks so much again for coming. <laughs>